I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. I am so excited to have Trisha Dow here with me. Trisha is the founder of Empowered, which is a consulting firm that focuses on DEI and culture. Trisha spent most of her career leading large, diverse teams toward the delivery of value for her clients at a big four accounting and advisory firm, firm which wherein she served as a partner. She's been pivotal in the discovery and sustainability of value in the million in the billions of dollars for her clients, and she's worked with executives and their teams in dozens of Fortune 500 companies in the majority of states. She's also created enormous value for entrepreneurs, high growth companies, and aspiring startups. Having made partner in a big four accounting firm in nine years, she was charged with building thriving practices from scratch in four different regions of the country and had all sorts of amazing success, which I will, I will sort of summarize here because the coolest, coolest part about Trisha is that she sort of decided to let that go. Uh, it wasn't the, the right environment for her. And she started her own company, Empowered where she partners with C-suites and managing partners to think, plan, and execute strategically for the purpose of accelerated and sustainable growth, uh, primarily in professional service groups and firms. And she really has a focus more and more on the DEI and culture side of, um, of, of businesses. She went to law school at Case Western Reserve and has a business degree from Miami University. And she is a amazing woman who I met in uh, a networking group and uh, we connected immediately. And uh, Trisha also has, um, a, is, a, is a white passing woman. So for anyone who here is watching um, and is married to a Frenchman who is a Muslim and has converted to Islam about 10 years ago. And so she's got some, some very interesting insights and experiences um, relating to that as well. So we're going to be talking about the professional and the, the personal aspect here of, of DEI and culture. Trisha, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So I guess I'd love to start with, I'd love to start with just quickly, like how it is that what a person with all the success that you had at your firm makes a decision to just leave. This isn't really the topic of this podcast at all, but I find it fascinating. And I think it is inspiring to hear that kind of story. Well, <laughs> it, it kind of was the culmination of a bunch of things happening at one time. Um, I was, I had basically worked for 75 hours a week for 16 years. Um, and most of the time I loved my work. When I moved to Chicago, the culture in that office was very different than what I'd experienced before and not in a good way. Um, I had been a partner for about six-ish years, six and a half years at that point and felt like I was not empowered at all to do anything actually around my own success and the, making the, the team I had around me successful, um, let alone how that would function in the rest of the firm. And I looked around and thought to myself, most of the partners here don't seem very empowered to do their best work or to bring their 
most of their talents to the table every day um, and decided, you know, I'm still young enough to just do something else completely different. And I felt like I could have more of an impact as a third party coming into my own firm as I did as a partner in my firm. And at the same time, I had met my husband in, in Paris and um, I, I can remember the day as, as like it was yesterday. We were in a cat. We were sitting in an outside, an outdoor cafe, on at the end of a bridge that kind of leads you back to uh, Paris proper. With there's something called Ile, Ile de la Cité, which is the oldest part of the city, um, and Notre Dame is on the other side of this bridge. So we would we would we we sat at this cafe. We kind of watched people meander down this bridge while I was on a conference call. Um, and he was always very patient, but he said, do you really love this this much? <laughs> I was like, nobody's ever asked me that before, but no, not really. <laughs> and so I came home and gave it a lot of thought and thought, I think I'm going to do, you know, yes, I'm afraid to lose this gigantic income. And yes, um, it'll take some years to replace it, but I want to do something with more meaning and significance than this. And so I jumped and everyone thought, most people thought I was absolutely crazy, but I jumped and it was a hard couple of years to get the messaging right and get my own, what I'm gonna do in the world right. Um, but I've absolutely loved every minute of the work that we do. That's amazing. I love those like key moments where you're like, what is it that I, <laughs> why is this what I think I'm supposed to be doing? Um, so can you talk a little bit about empowered? And I feel like you've had a bit of an evolution from where you started with it and now focusing more on, on DEI and culture. Um, can you share a little bit about that transition and what it is now that you're, that you're doing for, um, the companies that you consult with? Yeah. So I started the firm with the absolute intention of doing largely DEI and culture work from the very beginning. Um, people weren't listening to that very often back in 2013 when I started the company. So I thought, well, I have, I have built these, these practices all over the country from scratch with almost no team and figured it out and made hay in developing a brand and all the stuff that it requires and doing business development and um, running big teams and making it all work for them and all that stuff. So why don't I do that? first because everyone needs to most people want to grow um and so we started in that that part of it um and it was actually an important thing for us to learn so because i had spent so much time in working with fortune 100 companies um i needed to learn what the ropes are like in middle market companies um and smaller companies and it's a completely different world when the person running the entire show has all their teeth in the game. <laughs> like that's a completely different thing. Um, and so it was a powerful exercise and learning experience for me to get that. And I think I need that to do what we're doing now. Um, and we still do it. We focus mostly on minority owned companies now for business strategy. Um, but then um, in the last couple of years, culture and DEI became much more important. COVID has taught us a lot of things. Um, George Floyd's murder has taught us a lot of things. And it kind of exploded and there's all kinds of opportunities. Now I hope that it doesn't end up on a back burner at some point that we keep going. Um, and I think for the most part it will. I'm seeing it start to be 
to percolate in other countries too, like the UK in the UK and the rest of Europe. Um, and so I think they'll always be playing to do, especially because people have never figured culture out. Um, and DEI is, is largely a cultural exercise. Um, so yeah, that's how it all started. That's how we ended up here. Why do you think, like, what, what do you think is the resistance to the change? What, what do you think is so hard? I know that's like a huge million dollar question. Um, resistance to change. Well, humans are not DEI. I think people assume people in power. Well, first of all, people in power who aren't from underrepresented groups for the most part, um, don't want to lose what they have. So there's a little bit of that. I'm really succeeding and I'm really benefiting from the way things are. Why do I want to change them? Um, then there's of course, fear, um, fear that I will lose my standing or I will have to give something up or we won't be able to function as well if we, if we focus on these issues the way we should. Mm. Um, then there's, why do I wanna focus on something that only benefits quote unquote, a small percentage of our population at work? Um, the funny thing is though, every time we take any, any firms through this kind of process, they realize that this, the work that we're doing and the things that we're changing and the strategies that we're putting in place benefit absolutely everybody in the firm. So that is kind of the, the light bulb moment for most, but I would say it's mostly power, fear, <laughs> the typical contenders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's, it's always interesting for me as a white woman to come up against that and then to recognize like, okay, like this is, like my, I'm like learning my little baby lesson with, you know, for people who've had to experience this their entire lives and coming, coming up against this. So, um, yeah, but I, I think we're, we're, we're in a unique position to be white women that are challenging the power structure, um, because we get to carry a message directly to the power source, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and kind of challenge things in a way that are very, I mean, I'm a pretty blunt and straightforward person. Um, and I get to do that all day. I get to do that dance all day long, like resistance, resistance, resistance. How do you overcome resistance? Mm -hmm. um, and it's made me nimble in how you have those conversations so that you bring everybody to the table on the same page at some point. So the, the important thing in our work that is a challenge every day, but the kind of challenge I really love is making sure that everyone is on board with what is changing and what they're committing to as a firm. Um, and if you don't get that, you're kind of working in pockets that never actually effectuate any, any change. And that is where we come in. Um, hopefully that's one of our superpowers. That's amazing. That's, I mean, it, it's, I think a really, really hard thing to do. What are, without giving away your trade secrets, like what are some of the things you do to, if you can, if you, if that's something you can even like specify in a paragraph, you know, like what, how, how do you get people on board and, and do you use data? Do you say like these companies made these changes and this is what happened to their profits or how do you like, well, um, honestly, the data, data like that benchmarking data isn't so great so far. However, 
we typically do assessments of their own data, the fir- you know, the firm's own data um, in a variety of ways, interviewing focus groups, uh, surveys, um, reviewing HR data for inequity stuff, mm-hmm. um, policy reviews, all that kind of stuff. Um, but to be honest, and that, that is powerful, especially if you're dealing with uh, left brain people, uh, like if I'm working with accounting firms, for example, or lawyers, mm-hmm. um, the most, honestly, the most powerful things that we do, though, are to basically delve into the people that are having a hard time with this change or the, the potential for these strategies um, and ask them, what are you most concerned by? What is it that you're most worried about will happen if you actually implement these things? Why are you not on board? It usually reveals great things to then talk through and figure out. Um, most people that are, well, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not immune to this, by the way. Um, when you are in power and you're leading an organization, you don't, it's very hard to assess the, the success of your own culture or understand its nuances. Very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and once people are kind of confronted with, this is the reality of what you're putting out. Like what is actually happening with the way you intended this culture? Because most cultures aren't intentional, let's be honest. Um, and getting down to the very specifics of your intentions do not equal your impact. Mm. So your impact is having this effect, which we've, we've shown you through all the stuff we've done so far. And your intentions, which you say are, are X, Y, Z, are not happening. And that's on a very micro level with an individual to a organizational wide level. level. And if you can get them there and, and also we have a, you know, if you, if we could assume nothing, if we could live our lives, assuming nothing, the world would be a completely different place. So kind of calling out the assumptions made Mm. um, is also extremely important, but impact does not equal intention and intention does not equal impact. And if you can show that on a very personal level to leaders that are, that are resistant, then you usually get some headway. I love that. Um, who, okay. So I'm like, there's so many questions to go to in here, but I'd like to shift gears a little bit to talk about your um, experiences in your personal life uh, with your husband Um I'd love to hear a little bit about how you met. Um, and if you want to share that, it's a very romantic story. You've told me a little bit about it um, and, and how meeting him has impacted the way that you um, and, and your own your own conversion to Islam, like how that has all informed the way that you have seen Islamophobia show up in the world and, and how it impacts people. Yeah, well, let's start with the good news first. So. Um... <laughs> <laughs> we, I met him on a trip to Paris. I, I, I vacationed to Paris and I got off the plane and I got, grabbed my luggage and I taxied into the city and, um, walked into the hotel and he was standing there. And that was the end of that. I mean, he kind of looked at me like he was trying to figure out where he knew me from. Um, and I went in my dutiful way to the business computer, the, the, hotel computers to check my email um 
and he came over and asked me if I'd if I'd go out with him after he was done with work. And I was just, I was completely shocked. I thought he can't possibly be talking to me. <laughs> um, and that's, that was, you know, very serendipitous, but we kind of just hit it off immediately and had lots of long conversations and all that stuff. Um, when I actually, he asked me questions that I didn't know how to answer as a, as a Catholic. Um, and I went home and said, I want to understand what this man believes. Um, cause I knew very little about Islam. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in a all Italian neighborhood that was very Catholic and went to Catholic school and the whole nine yards. Um, my law school was very Jewish. So I understood a lot more about Judaism. Um, my dad's best friend was Jewish. So I knew, had a much better understanding of the other Abrahamic religion. Um, and so I read a couple books on the differences between Catholic, uh, Christianity and Islam. Uh, and I read the Quran and, um, it just, you know, I think, honestly, I think everyone has a path to the, to, to the same place at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it made more sense for me and, um, my family <laughs> was not, I didn't think, I didn't really think that my family would have any like strong opinions about it because it's not, it doesn't really affect them, but they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we, when he asked me to marry him and I let my family know, um, I was pretty much disowned. So, um, in the meantime, I had developed a lot of community, uh, you know, a lot more involvement with the, uh, Muslim community in Chicago. Um, and just learned a ton of stuff, like what people went through when 9-11 happened and how it changed everything in their lives and what they still continue to struggle with today. But in particular, if you're not familiar, um, the Muslim population in France is extremely marginalized and um, prevented from all kinds of things, you know, just getting educated or getting an apartment or buying a car or buying a house or any of those things. Um, the weird thing, the weird thing to me, because I'm not French, about France is that they don't track demographic data at all. So you can't even prove discrimination because they have no data to prove anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has endured, and his family has endured an enormous amount of racism and um, discrimination, you know, consistent over the years. I have heard that French people are very lovely to American Black people, like Black people who come from, you know, who have American citizenship or whatever who come here. Do you have a sense of like that dynamic and why it's so different for foreigners who are Black versus French? Well, they have a, they have a really love, they don't have any, they have a hate relationship with immigrants. I mean, let's, I'm going to be frank. Um, the way that, so I think the Muslim population of France is largely North African. They were colonized by the French. Um, and it's a troubling, a really troubling, bad history with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the 40s, 50s, when they were fighting for their independence, not 40s, 50s, 60s, um, a lot of, of Muslims from North Africa uh, emigrated to France because they needed workers. And I think they gave them kind of uh, 
clearance to do that because they needed the workers, but with the understanding that at some point they'd go back to North Africa and they didn't. Um, and, you know, the sentiment in France right now is very similar to the one we have in the U.S., which is I'm not really excited about immigrants coming to and changing, quote unquote, changing um, the culture and fabric of our, our country. Um, Muslims make up about 10% of the of the population there now. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing, at least this is me making an observation um, about the way France uh, frames the issue of or, or the challenge of, of Muslim immigrants is that they, they don't accept them into society and then they blame them because they're not integrated into society. Right. Um, and that's a hard thing for him. He's, you know, I see the pain of what he endures and how it affects him. He has it's hard for him to feel completely, in his case, Algerian and ancestry um, or completely French because he's not really accepted in either one. And that's very common for, um, in his case, second generation and into third generation uh, immigrants. And I think that's a lot of what immigrants in this country feel um, too. So it's complicated and awful and, um, I see little glimmers, but honestly, they're going through their own stuff like we did in the last five years, yeah. um, which kind of shows a ton of ugliness and a lot of regression. So we shall see. It's right for a lot of the work that we do. <laughs> totally. totally. Yes. Yes. So how, how has your relationship with him and your understanding of Islam from a personal perspective and seeing the way he's, he's treated and, and his people are treated. How has that informed the work that you do uh, at Empowered at your firm? Um, I think it puts me in the right frame of mind for where I sit on that, right? So yeah, I'm a white woman that owns a DEI firm. And I know the limitations of that. And I know, I guess, for lack of a better terminology, I know my place. Mm. I know that I have to um, get out of the way and amplify the voices of people who are actually marginalized and underrepresented in organizations um, and do what I am best at doing, which is strategically helping organizations change structurally, et cetera, um, and challenging the status quo. I feel like I can be a bridge for that. And that's what I focused my firm on um, and holding people accountable to that change, et cetera. Um, he, you know, he's really well-educated. He's way more intellectual than I am. So he helps me, I, you know, frankly, a lot of people in my community help me, my friends, um, cause I have, you know, a I have a lot of diversity in my personal life. Um, people who are willing to be honest with me, like when I face backlash, if I show up to something, you know, taking anti-racism classes and stuff like that, um, and helping me understand the perspective, uh, and the anger that can come at me sometimes, um, helping inform me about how the best way to do that is based on who I am as a person and what we're trying to do with the firm. It's been enormously helpful and mm -hmm. how we approach things um, because 
if you cannot, well, I say this all the time. I say this in almost every talk I do, regardless of the topic. If you can't have an enormous amount of self-reflection about anything, business strategy, culture, whatever you want to point it at, then you're not going to be very successful and you're not going to have the impact you need to have or want to have. Um, and I refuse to be, so it means taking some hits and understanding where the hits come from and, and learning from them. Yeah. It is, it is interesting. I think you're kind of getting at like the harm that, that being a white person can cause in, in spaces. Is that, what, can, you know, can you talk a little bit more about that? Cause for me, that was a huge aha moment that like. My, well, I think a lot of it is based on assumption, right? Yeah. Um, I will never center my own. Cause I've dealt with a lot of sexism in my life. Um, a lot of assumptions have been made about me that aren't true in a way that were, were really detrimental to me in my career. Um, that's completely different than what other people experience that are black or, you know, uh, non-passing Muslim. If you wear hijab, for example, mm -hmm. um, or an immigrant with a, for, with a, with a quote unquote foreign accent or whatever, um, understanding that I cannot center my own stuff when I'm trying to get other people uh, understood and amplify the strategies to make sure they have a place at the table is probably the most important place that I have to play in uh, at the firm. So making like making sure that you're not that you're making it about them, I guess is what you're. Yeah, it, frankly, if we if our only success is if if they succeed. I mean, the whole reason, the whole reason for being in this firm um, and having this firm is because I'm kind and this is actually, I'm not going to get into the details of it, but this is actually a white supremacist concept, but I am kind of obsessed with potential. Like think about all the people in the world that have been born on the planet and the fact that um, a huge amount of them died before the age of two and a huge amount of them died in childbirth and a huge amount of them um, are so poverty stricken, they can never focus on developing in anything to, to, to get where they need to go with what they've been given as far as, you know, characteristics and talents and stuff. Um, huge amount of them died in wars and a huge amount of them died of famine. And, you know, there are so many people that never got to fulfill um, their fullest potential while they were here. And that's what, to me, DEI is all about that you make a covenant with your employer when you come to a place and say, I'm going to commit most of my waking hours to this. Mm. And you're going to help me as my employer, you're going to help me reach my fullest potential while I'm with you. And I'm going to show up and attempt to reach my fullest potential while I'm with you. Um, I take that really seriously. And to me, DEI is all about, we haven't, we haven't fulfilled that covenant as employers. We have limited people's potential and their desires to reach it because of the things we have in place systemically and the things we do every day on a micro level. Mm -hmm. And as long as I'm on this, as long as it's my watch, I refuse to let that happen. That's, that's kind of where we, we sit with our reason for being as a firm. And that is what we get, we get up every day to do. I love that. How do you address like the standard of what success is also like, I'm, mm -hmm. I've, you know, talked to people who are like, Oh, the, 
the male partners are mad that the female got the promotion because she doesn't have the same experience. And my question is always, <clears throat> who says that that experience is what makes someone a good leader and who set the standard and why doesn't she have the experience? Probably because of the patriarchy, but like, how, how do you address like what a company even sees as success or, or um, what, how they even like view their own standards? Well, I actually have a lot of those conversations going on right now. Um, I have, first of all, I have to check myself half the time because I have an idea of success. I don't want to put on anybody else. Sure. Um, but you have to decide what you value in the people that are in your space. Like how many times have you come across cultures? Let's say, you know, it's for not peculiar to or specific to service-based firms, but it happens a lot in service-based firms where the rainmaker is a horrible person to work with or treats everyone badly or says horrible things or flirts with the staff or whatever it is. We put up with that person because they're a rainmaker. Why do we assume that other people cannot be rainmakers? Mm. Um, and why do we value that more than we don't have a 30% retention problem or, you know, people leaving in droves because that's what's happening. Like we don't, we don't quantify the loss of having someone that brings in a lot of revenue. It just is an example. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so being very clear, the same is with, with hiring. Um, let's say you need to hire attorneys because it's an easy example. We want to know their technical acumen, um, what kind of law they practice, um, and often their book of business that they have at their current firm. But do we have any idea whether they know how to work on a team or how to manage projects? Because project management is really important in a law, in a, being a lawyer. Um, do we have any idea if they are culturally aligning with our values as a firm? Do we even know what our values are to even develop criteria like that? You know, those are the things that start to decide how you, what you're really designing intentionally as a culture and how it's going to benefit everyone and how it's going to actually not just raise up the rainmakers. And there's nothing wrong with being a rainmaker, um, but it takes a lot more than rainmakers to make a really successful firm. Yeah. And how are we mirroring that and reflecting that in our everyday behaviors with each other and with everyone in our communities outside in the marketplace and everything else? Um, I think that's how you start to meld into how someone needs to show up successfully in a lot of different ways to be successful in our firm, not just one way or two ways. Yeah. Um, and that is how you great, create great cultures where everyone is thriving instead of a couple people and everyone else is just along for the ride and kind of miserable most of the time. I love that. I, I've been involved in a lot of um, work and conversations about diversifying, not diversifying, word is lame, but like, but increasing equity and inclusion amongst um, medical trainees and the, the the interview process and the recruitment process and and the questions that you ask and the criteria that you're looking at is it all you have your your scores on your boards is it your you know and because with, without realizing as you obviously know like 
the things that lead into someone having a higher or lower score aren't necessarily about someone's like worthiness as a human being or their ability to be a good doctor. And there's lots of stuff that goes into that. So I'm hearing a lot of that echoed in what you're saying. It's not what we think are our criteria are like a fraction of the, the criteria that we should be looking at and, and having a more holistic approach. Is that? Yeah. And you know, that's actually to me, it's not valuing differently so much as it's valuing, valuing a lot more. Like, yeah. you know, I was a rainmaker. I, I, I still do rainmaking, <laughs> but I, I have to be, I have to have a lot more skills to be successful than that. And thank God, like I'm a multifaceted human being. Like I didn't like being just tagged as a rainmaker at my, in my last career. Um, or just, you know, very early in my career, just the technical geek that would get all these things written up to be great defense against, you know, IRS stuff and things like that. It's people should play to their strengths, but we should expect people to, to develop a variety of, uh, you know, round out their talents and strengths while they're with us. Mm -hmm. That's especially as they ascend in, ascend in the firm. I think that's so important because it's like the standard is the standard until it's not the standard. And the people who set the standard are the people who succeed in the standard and, and they benefit want from the standard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, well, how, how well is that standard actually? Like, where's that getting us? <laughs> like, how, 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 how are we considering that as, as what success looks like? Cause there's so many, I mean, like I see this all the time in, in, you know, culture in our country here, like, how is it that this is, something to aspire to, you know? And so there's so much more to, to look into. Um, any other, I mean, there's like so much to talk about, but I just, I wanna thank you for sharing your, your personal uh, stories with us uh, as well as, as your insights on the professional side and how they have, how they've joined together. Um, anything else that you, that you wanna share? I mean, I guess I do wanna ask you about this. What are some misconceptions you feel like about Islam or about Muslims that you've seen and that like, would you want to address or, or things that you would want people to know? And that might be like a lame question. Cause I, I ask questions like that sometimes. And I get a question like, Jill, why are you being so white about this? <laughs> like, well, I guess the first, making, like, the first the thing is, um, <laughs> well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll give you my top three. Um, approximately 1.5 billion people on the planet are Muslim. It's not a monolith. Mm. We're all very, you know, it, it's a whole myriad of different people at different levels of practice. Um, just like every other religion, by the way. <laughs> um, and we're, it, it, it's okay to allow us to be individuals that are practicing a religion instead of just assuming a bunch of stuff about everybody because they're in a religion. Um, the other thing is there's a big difference between what is cultural and what is religious. Mm. A lot of the practices that people have an issue with have nothing to do with the religion. They're cultural. Um, and terrorism has no religion. So that's kind of off the table for us. There, you know, if you have decided to, and there's a lot of other faiths that have uh, been harmed by 
violent people in the name of that religion that have contorted and betrayed their, that religion in the process. And the stuff that's happened with terrorists that are that claim Islam is the, is the same. Yeah. Um, terrorism has no religion. And so just like, every, you know, uh, I think his name is John Esposito has written a lot of books about um, how, because people are so unfamiliar with actual Muslim people, um, so many assumptions are made and assumptions are always a bad thing. That's the whole bias, unconscious bias. That's what it's based in. So if I had any advice, it's to go actually talk to actual Muslims and learn about them and understand them. And, and with the perspective that some of what you will learn about them is cultural and some is actually religious, um, just like you. <laughs> the things you do culturally are not the same things sometimes that you do religiously. Um, and that's, I guess, the top, the top three or four that I would, I would put out. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you. I love that. Terrorism has no religion. Is that, is that your, your quote? <laughs> I don't know. It's been said all the time for the last several years. So I have no idea, but no, it's, it's the truth. It's so um, true. It's so true. And I'll just like, there's no religion. There is no religion on the planet that, that would condone the killing of innocent people. In fact, in Islam, um, it is actually said in the Quran that to kill one man is to kill all of mankind. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of, and some of the teachings are, you don't even kill bugs. Like there are people who don't kill bugs <laughs> um, and put them outside instead of killing them and stuff like that. So you just, just try to, you know, decipher what is real from what is fiction. Um, and that the best way to do that is to actually know Muslims and talk to them. And like, if you don't have access, maybe follow them on social media to start, you know, like if you, yeah. I feel like a lot of people can look around and like, how do I go out, you know, but look around your, your network, you know, what are you seeing in your scrolls every day? Is it people who look just like you? And if so, why? And if, you know, right. then start to follow people. And then it feels like, oh, I know that. I understand that. I, I've, I read mm -hmm. this. Um, I've always like one of the first thing that, 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 um, sort of shook me into realizing, um, uh, I'm, I'm Jewish and, you know, have always been raised that like Israel, like the Israelis are the freedom fighters. And then the like Palestinians or the Arabs or whatever the, the term is, they're the, the terrorists and we're the freedom fighters. And I was like, what do they think we are? <laughs> like, you know, and this is like as a teenager, kind of trying to reconcile what felt very weird to me and not understanding it, um, it and not fully diving into it until much more recently. But like, who who gets to determine who's a terrorist and who gets to determine like fighting fighting for your for your life after you've been after you've been treated horribly and oppressed, does that make you a terrorist? You know, it just, it's a, I, I find it all like, it's very complex, but I think starting to question that for anyone who has these assumptions like you're talking about, I think is, is really important and, and feels big, you know, it made, it may challenge a lot of, of what people believe about the world and their own religion. Um, so I, I love that terrorism has no religion. Um, how do people find you and work with you, Trisha? Well, it's really relatively easy. <laughs> um, empoweredlc.com is our website. 
I can be found at on LinkedIn, um, Trisha Dow on LinkedIn, and my email is Trisha at empoweredlc.com. I work with email. All right. Um, so at empoweredlc.com. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and for the work that you do. Um, it's very uh, inspiring. And I think that everyone who gets to work with you is very lucky. And I'm just grateful that we cross paths in our, in our networking world um, and thankful for Zoom and virtualness for allowing that because it probably would not have happened otherwise. So there are yeah, thank you. many negatives, but also many pluses to this virtual world we're living in. And um, thanks again for, for your um, vulnerability and honesty and um, your values and, and living by those values. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to spend some time with you. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.